Good evening, everyone. It's good to see you all tonight. We're in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And we'll um, read verses 1 to 17 tonight. Matthew chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 1. There it says, Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were all struck and glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and, uh, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, asking for uh, your uh, wisdom to be given to us. Lord, we uh, confess that we are uh, ignorant and foolish people, apart from, Lord, your grace and mercy. Lord, apart from uh, your wisdom and understanding, Lord, we cannot understand uh, the first things in regards to salvation or those things that are pleasing to you. Lord, we cannot uh, come to a proper understanding of good and evil, of truth and error. So, Lord, we need you to be our teacher, and we ask that you would teach us, Lord, from your word tonight, that you would instruct us uh, in the way of faith and in the way of righteousness. Uh, so, Lord, give us the proper mind, Lord, that we might uh, see wonderful things, Lord, from your word. Lord, we pray that we would uh, have even greater confidence in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his power and authority to forgive sins on earth, and that, Lord, we would uh, trust in him, Lord, knowing that those who go to him for refuge, Lord, that they will not be disappointed. So, Father, we pray that you would be our teacher and our guide tonight and that you would give us a proper understanding of your word 
And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, Matthew chapter 9. Here we continue on with narratives uh, of Jesus and his interactions with people, uh, his teachings, uh, these types of things. This is what uh, much of the Gospels are, uh, various uh, narratives describing the events uh, that happened in the life of Christ or sermons uh, that are given uh, as a synopsis of what he was teaching to the people during his time on earth. So these things are given for our benefit to instruct us in the faith, right? These things happen to them, but they were written down for our instruction, right? So whenever we have these things in the Bible, it happened to them, but it wasn't merely for them. It was also for us. It's been preserved for us, for our faith, so that we might know the will of God. And all scripture is breathed out by God. And all scripture is profitable so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So all the Bible is given to us, and the Bible is a perfect record of what we need for our faith, for knowing and understanding the will of God, so that we might know the way of salvation and how to live a life pleasing to God. Right? There were many other things that Jesus did, but this is what God, in His wisdom, His infinite wisdom, has ordained that we need to know for our salvation. So we have this here in the Word of God for a purpose, right? for the purpose of instructing us in the way, in the knowledge of salvation. And that is beneficial both for the unbeliever who needs to be converted, right? They need the knowledge of salvation that leads to ultimate salvation. So these narratives, these teachings of Christ are benefit to them because it shows them how it is that they can be saved and have their sins forgiven. But also it's beneficial for the believer because it's going to sanctify us, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth right? That our faith is progressed and we grow in the faith through interacting with the Word of God. So the Word of God is beneficial for everyone. This is what we need to be doing is teaching the Word of God. Now I say that because often you'll hear people talk about we need uh, evangelistic sermons or messages for unbelievers and then you need other messages for believers. But this is a false dichotomy that people invent. All we need for anyone is to explain what the Bible teaches. And that's going to be a benefit whether they're an unbeliever who needs to be converted or whether they're a believer who needs to be sanctified. The Bible is sufficient to accomplish both of these tasks. And God is able to use his word in such a way that it, it uh, fits whatever the situation calls for. Whether it is the calling of a sinner to salvation or whether it is the progressing of a saint in the knowledge of his salvation, the word of God is perfect at doing that in all of its parts, right? So it doesn't matter where we are at, what we are preaching and teaching through, it's always going to be a benefit to anyone who hears it, right? The key is that we hear it and that we believe it, that we believe it and that it is accompanied with true faith, true faith in the word of Christ. And so this is what we need to do. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. It says, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. We remember that Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee uh, into this area where the demoniacs were located, which was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, that region of the world, the geography, the Sea of Galilee is in the north. And then the Jordan River runs out of the Sea of Galilee to the south into the Dead Sea. Right. So and this is a natural boundary there for the land of Israel. And he had been on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. This is where his home city was. 
the area of Nazareth, Bethsaida, Capernaum, Chorazin, these areas are there. And then he traveled to the east side, and that's where he was at when he interacted with the demoniacs. And there we remember that having cast the demons out of the demoniacs and the demons going into the swine and rushing them into the sea, that the people of the city begged him to leave their region, implored him to go, and so Jesus does. He gets into a boat and he crosses back over to his own city, to these areas where he uh, did much of his ministry. And then in verse 2, it says, They brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Here it says that they brought to him a paralytic who was lying on a bed. Now if we go over to Mark, in Mark's gospel, we have a uh, more details concerning the healing of this paralytic. And in Mark chapter 2, it says in verse 1, When they had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. But being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. So there, uh, these ones bringing him are these four. These four carrying him. He's a paralytic. He cannot carry himself. He's not able to walk. So they bring him to Jesus in order for Jesus to heal him. And there it says, seeing their faith, right? The faith of the paralytic and the faith of the friends, because they're the ones that are bringing him. And they're the ones showing their faith that Christ has the ability to do this. Because why are they going to undertake this endeavor, right? Doesn't it take exertion, physical exertion, to carry a man, to go through the rigmarole to do this? Even in Mark chapter 2, they're not able to get into the house. So they have to go up to the roof and make a hole and let him down, right? That takes great effort to do this type of thing. So they also have to believe that Jesus has the power and the ability to heal this man of his paralysis. So they have proper faith and understanding in the person of Christ and what he is able to do. And also that this faith is not merely faith that he can give this man the ability to walk, but also that he has the power to forgive sins, right? To forgive sins because this is the ultimate reason why Jesus would be the object of our faith. That is what we need more than anything else is to have our sins forgiven. So their belief and understanding of Jesus, his, uh, that he is the Christ, that he is the one to whom men should go for the forgiveness of sins, right? This faith is being manifested in their bringing the paralytic to Jesus for him to heal his body, right? And so they have this faith already, right? Already they have this faith and they are bringing him to Jesus for that reason. Both the friends and the paralytic who would also be in agreement with doing this, right? So they're all in this together. And then Jesus says, take courage, your sins are forgiven. Here, 
They're bringing the paralytic so that he might be healed of his paralysis. And yet Jesus is the one who focuses on the spiritual component. He brings it to the surface because that's what he is focusing on. That's what he wants to talk about. Not that there isn't any relation to the two, right? There is going to be a relation it to the two, and Jesus will emphasize that as well. But in terms of bringing the spiritual into the forefront, making it primary, Jesus is the one who does that. So he turns it from an issue of uh, healing someone from some physical ailment to dealing with the issue of sin and the forgiveness of sins, right? And salvation. Jesus is going to talk about these things because he wants the people to understand the connection between the healing and the ultimate purpose for his coming, which is the forgiveness of sins, right? He didn't just come to heal people who were sick, right. to heal people who were paralyzed. Jesus wasn't doing social ministry as many people promote today. Ultimately, Jesus was doing true ministry, which has to do with the preaching of the gospel and deals with sin, which is the ultimate issue that needs to be dealt with in terms of mankind. So he's not doing social ministry. Now, again, I say that because it is very common, especially in liberal churches, but even in many evangelical churches as well, where the gospel is social ministry. The gospel is feeding the poor. Uh, the gospel is uh, giving medicine to the sick, taking care of orphans, taking care of widows. And, and by taking care of them, not caring for their soul, but just giving them food, giving them clothing, doing, doing these types of things, providing medicine for them. And this is what many people will call ministry, uh, missions, uh, that this is what they are doing. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is first and foremost a preacher of righteousness, a preacher of the gospel, and he is calling sinners to repent of their sins and to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins, his death, his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And if there is a ministry that is not preaching the gospel in that way, they're not uh, confronting the sin of people, calling them to repent, calling them to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, but instead they're just meeting physical needs of people that is not true ministry. Right. It's false ministry. And it's actually very dangerous because you're helping the bodies of these people, but you're neglecting their soul. But what is more important, the body or the soul? Right? If Jesus simply heals this man of his paralysis, but does not heal his soul of the sickness of sin, then the only difference is instead of being a paralytic who goes to hell, he's going to be a man who has the use of his legs and goes to hell. But if he heals him of his sin, then whether he's paralyzed in this life or whether he's not paralyzed in this life, ultimately he's going to go to heaven. And that's what he truly needs. So Jesus is focused on the spiritual. And that's why he's the one that brings this up. He turns it into a spiritual issue. Also, it should be pointed out, he knows full well that it's also going to lead to controversy. Because he knows his enemies are there. They are present. They are his antagonists. They've been his antagonists from the very beginning. Yet, even though there's the potential for controversy, Jesus does not shrink back from speaking the truth. He's the one that presses the matter. 
He's pressing it on purpose in order to draw their sin to the surface. So he could have just healed the man of his physical disease and then met with him privately afterwards and explained to him, you know, I also am forgiving your sins. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he does it openly and publicly knowing that his critics, those who hate him, are going to use it as an opportunity to accuse him of sin. But he's fine with that because he's going to turn it on them and he's going to expose their sin for the good of the people. So even when there's the potential for controversy, should we shrink back from speaking the truth? No. Is it true that Jesus has the power to forgive sins? Is it good for people to know that? Yes. Even if there's naysayers and critics who are going to oppose that. Even if the naysayers and critics are in that moment going to accuse you of being a blasphemer. It doesn't bother Jesus. He does it anyway, right? This is the way it is. And this is why the apostle tells us, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, that you are blessed, right? Blessed are you and men shall revile you and hate you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Isn't this what they did to Christ? They're saying, they're going to say evil against him falsely because of a good deed that he does. But this is how insatiable they are to criticize him and to do these types of things. Verse three, and some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. Here, some of the scribes say to themselves, notice that, did they say it outwardly? No, they say it to themselves. And if we go back over to Mark chapter two, In verse 6, it says, But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. So they're not even whispering back and forth to one another. They're reasoning in their hearts. So they're saying this in their heart and in their mind. And then verse 7, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, here, in one regard, they are correct, yep. right? Their premise is correct. They understand rightly that God and God alone has the authority to forgive sins. So that is factually true according to the Bible. They also rightly understand that if a man claims for himself the ability to do something that only God can do, that this indeed does constitute blasphemy. That is blasphemy. If I said that I have the power in myself to forgive sins, I would be blaspheming. If I claim to be eternal, that would be blasphemy. If I claim to have all knowledge, to be omniscient, to be omnipresent, anything that God possesses that is unique to God, if any man claims that for himself and says that he has that same attribute or that same ability that only God possesses, that is blasphemy against God. We should not put ourselves as an equal or claim to be able to do things that only God can do. So it is true that God and God alone can forgive sins. And it is true that for a man to claim to be able to do what only God can do is blasphemy. So in that regard, what they're saying is accurate, but they're misapplying it. The misapplication of the truth, that's the problem. Because 
Jesus is God. He's God in human flesh. So it's not blasphemy for Jesus to claim to have the authority to forgive sins because he has the authority to forgive sins because God the Father has given that authority to him. He has the authority to lay down his life. He has the authority to take it up again. The Father has given it to him. He has the authority to forgive the sins of men. This is unique to him. So it is not blasphemy for Jesus to say this if we understand the person of Christ. We have to understand who he is. And who is he? He is God in human flesh. He is God incarnate. God who is here with us. Right? This is who he is. As we recently memorized from John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, and he is the representative of the Father. To see Christ is to see the Father. As it says in John chapter 14, Philip, have I been with you so long that you don't understand these things? That if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So here, their premise is correct, but their application is wrong. It is wrong. And this is because of their blindness. This is as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When he says that the authorities, the rulers of this age, would not have put him to death had they understood these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 says, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They can't see it. They don't understand it. They don't have eyes to see. That's the problem. This is why here when the facts are staring them in the face, right in front of them, right? It's obvious as plain as day that Jesus has this authority, that he is the son of God, yet they can't see it because this wisdom must be taught by the spirit of God and the spirit is not teaching them these things. So what should be an occasion that leads them to glorify God, to trust in Christ, is instead an occasion for them to commit sin. And actually, who is the blasphemer here? They're the blasphemers. Isn't that true as well? Isn't it often true that when you have a fault finder, a naysayer, a critic, a grumbler, a malcontent, like these kinds of people, that the very thing they accuse you of is what they themselves are guilty of? That's what they're doing. They're accusing him of blasphemy, but they're the ones blaspheming, not Jesus. They are the blasphemers of God. They are the ones misrepresenting God in that way. And it's all because they don't have eyes to see and they don't have ears to hear and they do not have a heart to understand. Because to this day, God has not given them ears to hear. God has not given them eyes to see. God has not given them a heart to understand. They don't have the right heart. So they say this fellow is blaspheming God. 
And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Now here, their sin is still internal, right? It's still inside of them. Couldn't Jesus just leave it alone? It's not bothering anyone else, right? Is it not hurting? Isn't that what people say? It's not hurting anyone else. So if it's not hurting anyone else, why don't you just leave me alone? Leave me alone. Let me do what I want to do. Well, this is in their own heart. Why does Jesus have to bring it up? Why does he have to expose it to everyone? Because it's the right thing to do, right? It's the right thing to do. Now, Jesus knows their thoughts. He knows their thoughts. He knows what's in their heart. And he confronts them on this. He says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Notice that. He doesn't pull any punches. He identifies the sin and he calls it according to what it is. Is it evil for them to say this? Yes, it's very evil. So Jesus doesn't use soft, effeminate language to describe their sin. He calls it what it is. He calls it evil. And this is the way we need to be straightforward, plain, when we're talking about sin. Sin is evil. And we can't say, well, if I use the word evil, it might offend them. So I'll use a different word that's a little easier on the ears, something that'll go down a little bit smoother, and then they'll listen to me if I use the right kind of words. But when has that ever worked? It doesn't work, and that's never the case. It's never the problem. Now, we don't have to berate them. We don't have to beat them over the head with a golf club. We're not stomping on people's feet. He's not doing that at all. He, he's bringing it up, but he's calling it according to what it is. And this is the way that we should do as well. Whenever there is sin and the sin manifests itself, then we have to call it evil. This is evil. Why are you doing this, right? You shouldn't be doing these types of evil things. And it's never a matter of tone, words. If you use different words, if you said it a different way, then you'll have a more favorable response. That's not never the problem. Because ultimately, for them to repent of sin, what has to happen? The spirit, they have to have a new heart. It takes a miracle of God. So it's not dependent on your wisdom. And it's not dependent on your and mine, our ability to communicate and our ability to be winsome and charming enough and smooth enough and wordsmiths so that we can convince people to believe the truth. All we need to do is say what is true and right. And then it's up to God and his spirit to convince them of these things. And that's why Jesus just says what needs to be said. Why are you speaking evil in your hearts? So he confronts it, and he also does it in front of other people as well, because they need to hear it too. These are their teachers. Well, they need to know that their teachers have evil thoughts, and you don't need to have evil thoughts like they do. Also, notice here, Jesus didn't meet with them in private. He didn't go to Starbucks with them. He didn't sit down and have coffee with them in a one-to-one setting. He just did it right there on the spot, right? Right there on the spot, openly in front of everyone because the sin came to the surface and came to the attention and it needed to be dealt with. Okay, a couple of passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians 12, verse 1 to 3 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. No one with the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, which is essentially what they're saying here. When they're saying you're blaspheming, they're saying you're accursed. You're under the curse of God because you're committing heinous sins against God. So they don't have the Spirit of God because if they did, they would not be accusing Jesus of blasphemy. Also, you cannot say Jesus is Lord in the true proper sense, right? Say it and mean it in the proper way without the Holy Spirit. You have to have the Holy Spirit to say those things truly. Also, 1 John chapter 4. First John 4, verses 1 to 6. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But if they deny this, they're not from God. So here, they are accusing Jesus of blasphemy, while at the same time claiming to be teachers of the Bible, who are led by the Spirit. But are they really led by the Spirit? No way, no way Jose. It is not the case at all. Now, verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Here, Jesus is showing them how foolish their thoughts are, how foolish and how evil their thoughts are. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Well, here, right, in terms of what is taking place, in terms of the transaction that is taking place, is it a bigger deal to forgive someone their sins or is it a bigger deal to heal someone of paralysis, right? The greater thing that needs to be dealt with is sin, right? Sin. Sin necessitates Jesus Christ dying on the cross, right? Shedding his blood and rising from the grave, right? That is necessary for sin to be forgiven. In terms of healing the paralytic, that can be done simply by speaking a word right? It can be done in that way. So in terms of what is the greater debt, what is the more difficult thing to accomplish, the forgiveness of sins is far more difficult and far more costly than what it takes for this paralyzed man to be healed, right? This is as it says in Psalm chapter 49, verses 7 to 9. Psalm 49, verse 7.
says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever that he should live on eternally and that he should not undergo decay. So no man can redeem his brother by any means. No man can give to God a ransom for him because the ransom for a life is very costly. The payment for sin is a costly payment. It is very, very difficult transaction that needs to be taken care of. So in terms of which is easier to do, healing a paralytic is an easier thing to do than forgiving someone of their sins, right? In terms of what is taking place. However, in terms of proving this, healing the paralytic is something that if you say you have the power to do, and I say and claim I have the power to heal people of paralysis, and they bring a paralyzed man in front of me, and I'm not able to heal him, and he doesn't get up and walk, what's everyone going to know about me? That I'm a fool and I'm a fraud and that I don't have the power to do that. But if I claim to have the power to forgive sins, and I say, your sins are forgiven. Well, while we know that that's not true factually and biblically, how can you prove that? Right? How can you, because the forgiveness of sins is an invisible spiritual thing that takes place. Certainly on the day of judgment, it will be proven. But in the moment, right, a person could say that left and right. And how can you prove one way or another other than the fact that what they're saying is inconsistent with the Bible? But what proof is there visibly and physically that they don't have the power to forgive sins? So the greater thing is the forgiveness of sins. But in terms of saying I have the power to heal a man, well, that's going to be proven immediately. Because if the man doesn't get up and walk, then you're a fraud and you are a phony. And that's why verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus has the power to do both. He has the power to forgive sins and he has the power to heal the paralyzed man. And these are here together to prove so that you will know, so that it will be plain and evident and obvious to you that I have the power to forgive sins. I'm going to manifest that power in a lesser power by telling this paralytic to get up, rise, take his mat and go home. And who can deny that Jesus has the power to do that? When he came paralyzed, if he gets up and walks home, it's obvious that he has the power to do that. And if he has the power to do this thing, then we also ought to believe he has the power to do this other thing, right? This other great thing. And again, in terms of paralysis, well, it's very rare for someone to be paralyzed, right? It's not common. It's, it's a rare, it's an exception to the rule. But in terms of spiritual paralysis or the forgiveness of sins, it's universal. We all need the forgiveness of sins. So we all need to know that Jesus has the power to forgive sins and he proves that he has that power by healing the paralyzed man. The miracles are there to attest to this fact that Jesus is from God. We should listen to him and we should put our faith in him for the forgiveness of sins. John chapter 9. 
John chapter 9, verses 30 to 34. John 9, verse 30. This was the blind man who was healed, blind from birth. And he's being interrogated by the religious leaders. John 9, 30. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Here, this blind man who was healed, he knows and rightly understands that God does not hear sinners. God does not listen to sinners in this way to heal for this good purpose. There's no way that God would listen to this man if he was evil, that he was of the devil, if he wasn't from God, right? It's only those who fear God and do his will. Those are the one that, that God hears. And when has it ever been heard that there was a man born blind and someone opened his eyes? And then the people conclude that this man who opened the eyes of the man born blind wasn't from God, but was from the devil, right? right? He said, it's ridiculous. How could you believe this man was from the devil, that this man wasn't from God? Because only God has the power to do this. No man has the power in himself to open the eyes of a man born blind. Yet this man opened my eyes, but you don't think he's from God. That's what he's showing them. Do you see how insane this is? How stupid, ridiculous it is for you not to see these things. That's what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 9. So that you will know and be convinced, and it is clear evidence that I have the power to forgive sins, then I say to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and walk. The miracle itself is attesting, the work is attesting to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is from the Father, and that he has the power to forgive sins. Sins. Also, John chapter 10, verses 31 to 39. John 10, 31. says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? There, Jesus is being sarcastic, right? right? They're about to stone him. And he says, What good work are you going to stone me for? Healing the blind man, healing the paralytic, raising someone from the dead, feeding 5,000. That's a very evil thing to do. Casting demons out of people. These are all very evil deeds to be doing, right? No. Which one of these good deeds are you going to stone me for? Right? Which one? That's what they're doing. And they say, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Same problem, right? Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Here, in terms of the 
those who have positions of authority in this earth, they are, in a sense, gods, in that they are vested with authority from God to rule on the earth. And the scripture calls them that, though they're not divine. They don't have divinity in terms of their nature. Yet, because they have authority from God, they are addressed in the law as gods. So then why are you, Jesus says, accusing me of blasphemy for claiming to be the son of God when I share the divine nature with God? He's not blaspheming at all. They don't even know their own scriptures. Okay. Right. If I do not do the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So there, if you don't believe me, believe the works. The works are attesting to the fact that the Father is in Christ, and Christ is in the Father. That they are one. He and the Father are one. Right. That they share a divine nature. Or they have the same nature, right, in this regard. So that's what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 9, verse 6. Okay, then verse 7, he got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. So the paralytic gets up, goes home. The crowds, when they see it, they're awestruck, right? They, they see, they recognize the miracle. They're glorifying God for God giving authority to men in this way on the earth. Then verse 9. And Jesus went out from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Here, Jesus is calling Matthew, who was a tax collector, a tax, a tax collector sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he calls him to follow him. Now, when he's calling him to follow him, he's not calling him to follow him and keep committing sins. Keep committing sins, keep defrauding people, keep stealing from people, and doing those types of things. And he could be a good tax collector, because not all tax collectors were evil. But even if he was a fraudulent tax collector, you could still practice that. You could repent of that, right? You could repent of that, and you're expected to do so. If we go to Luke chapter 3... Luke chapter 3, verse 12. says, And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Right. Here, tax collectors are coming to John, and when they're, John is preaching a baptism of repentance, telling them to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance and so they're asking him what should we do what does that look like right in terms of our daily life what does that look like we're tax collectors and he tells them don't collect more than you're ordered to do you're authorized to collect a certain amount of taxes he doesn't say quit being a tax collector he doesn't say this is an evil occupation and you should have nothing to do with it we know from Romans 13 that we ought to pay taxes to whom taxes are owed and revenue to whom revenue is owed. And there has to be some order for this to be collected. 
right? There has to be a minister from the government, from the authorities to go out and collect the revenue that is required of the people to support the legitimate functions of the government, okay? So being a tax collector was not in and of itself evil, but it was the abuse of tax collecting that was the problem. Now, it doesn't tell us whether Matthew was an abusive tax collector or whether he was a just tax collector. It doesn't say so. It simply says that he was a tax collector. However, being a tax collector had a stigma to it. A stigma because nobody likes the tax collectors, right? And many of them were abusing their positions, their position and their authority in order to cheat the people, defraud the people, gather and collect more money than what they were authorized to do. And then they were getting very rich off of this and then living a life of excess, of revelries, doing those types of things, okay? So he's a tax collector. Jesus says, come follow me. And he gets up and he follows him. And now he's not gonna be a tax collector anymore, but he's going to be a disciple of Christ, an apostle of Christ, and he will be a preacher of righteousness. Just as Peter, James, and John were fishermen, and now they are fishers of men. So he was a tax collector, and now he'll be collecting souls for God. Okay, or however else you want, want to say it. Okay, then verse 10. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew, being a tax collector, would naturally have associations with other tax collectors, that he would know those of the same profession. Isn't this common? Many times, if we have a profession, we're around or we talk to, we have friendships with those who have the same profession. We have these relationships. And here, he's using this as a way to give Jesus a platform to preach the gospel to his friends, right? To his acquaintances, to those who are tax collectors and sinners. And they are there in the house, reclining at the table. And there are many tax collectors and sinners who have come and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Now notice here, where are they at? Well, it says they are in the house. And then what are they doing? reclining at the table and they are eating. Is being in the house a sin? No. Is reclining at the table a sin? No. Is eating a sin? No. So none of these actions that are taking place are in and of themselves sinful actions. None of these are sins. Jesus is not at the bar. He's not at the strip club. He's not at the brothel, right? He's not in any of these places at a club or some nightclub, some seedy establishment. He's not there. He's not at the tax booth with the tax collectors while they're defrauding people, right? He's not there in any of those places. He's in the home, reclining at the table, eating with them. And while they're eating, while he's there reclining, what do people do when they're there gathered for a meal? Don't we talk? And what would Jesus be talking about, do we think? What does Jesus always talk about? What's always on his mind and always on his lips? The kingdom of God. Preaching the kingdom of God, which includes day of judgment, sin, repentance of sin, and faith in him. No doubt this is what he's doing. So he is in no way committing any sin. 
and he's not with sinners while they're committing sins. They're here eating with him, hearing him teach them about the kingdom of God. So what's so wrong about that, right? What is so evil about what Jesus is doing? He's not just hanging out with sinners, right? Because this is what people, they use these passages to talk about Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with sinners. He went to the places where the sinners were to hang out with them. He's not watching movies with them. He's not going to a football game with them. He's not just shooting the breeze with them about this or that, doing some recreational activity. He's not doing that, nor is he in a sinful place. If they would have said, Jesus, come with us to the brothel, he would have said, no, no way. And what would he have done? You need to repent. You better repent of that sin because if you don't, you're going to go to hell. That's what Jesus would have said to them. But there's no way that he would have ever gone to a sinful establishment where people are committing sins and kept his mouth shut. He didn't do that with the Pharisees, did he? Even when they were saying it in their own heart. And there's no way that he's just hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and not calling them to repent of their sins. So people will use these to promote this type of friendship evangelism, which means you hang out with people for 10 years before you ever talk of any substance about anything. And hang out means you go watch movies together, you uh, play sports together, you go on, do activities together, stuff like that. But you don't talk about anything having to do with sin, judgment, repentance, for forgiveness, faith in Christ, none of those things, because you don't want to drive them away, right? You got to build relationships. You got to build these bridges first, these bridges. It's like the uh, uh, the San Francisco Bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> these things took 20 years to build. And this is the kind of bridges that people are building. But this isn't what Christ is doing. He's in the home. He's eating with people. And we ought to be doing this. If there is the opportunity for us to gather our family, our friends, our coworkers, our associates, and say, hey, let's have a meal together and invite whoever else. And if you want to invite me, if you want to invite someone else, and let's have the purpose of having a meeting. We'll have a meal and we'll have a meeting together and we'll do a Bible study. That's what we ought to be doing. And if they're willing to come to that in our home or in someone else's home and they're not committing sins, whoever they are, then yes, we should take those opportunities. If they're a drug dealer and they're willing to come, now as long as they're not bringing uh, their narcotics with them or trying to shoot us or anything, but if they're willing to come and sit down with a Bible and have a reasonable conversation and talk about the things of God, then of course we should be taking those opportunities. Isn't that what Jesus is doing here? And likely it's Matthew who is putting this all together, right? That he's the one putting it together, bringing his friends, his associates, his co-workers to come meet Jesus so that Jesus has a platform to preach the gospel to them for their benefit. So, Nothing Jesus is doing here is evil, sinful, the way the Pharisees are taking it, nor is it licentious and loose the way that modern people interpret this today. But what he's doing is true evangelism. This is true evangelism, and this is what we ought to be doing as well. So he has, he's there in the home, reclining with them, with his disciples, no doubt preaching the gospel to them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice that. When the Pharisees saw this, these people, 
it's like they live in the walls or something. Where the, how are they always around all the time, right? They're always there. These are fault finders, grumblers, malcontents, lurking around every corner, looking for something to criticize. Evil suspicion. They have evil suspicion. They always want to find something and they're going to make it as horrible as possible. The worst possible interpretation of the events, which is actually a misinterpretation of what is going on. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? As if Jesus is condoning their sin. As if Jesus is not calling them to repent. No, he's not doing any of those things that they're accusing him. And why are they going to his disciples? If their problem is with Jesus, why don't they go directly to him? But they know they can't go to him because what does he do to them? He makes them look like fools every time. So they go to his disciples. And when they go to his disciples, what are they trying to do to the disciples? Drag them away. Trying to get their evil hooks in them so they can drag the disciples away and spoil it and, and corrupt their mind against their master, Jesus. Oh, well, yeah, you know, that's a good point that they make there. Why is he eating with these tax collectors and sinners? This is going to give us all a, a bad reputation if, if we do these types of things. So their, their motives, their, everything about them stinks to high heaven. Okay, but then verse 12, when Jesus heard this, he said, now he comes in, he hears what's going on, and he's going to address it and put an end to it, okay? When Jesus heard it, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus heard it, he says, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Isn't this true in the world? Whenever someone is sick, we take them to the doctor. If you're healthy, you don't need to go to the doctor. I don't care what they say. They tell you you need a checkup every year. Don't listen to them. They just want your money. They need, they don't, you don't need a checkup. They need your checkbook. That's what they really need once a year. They want to get your money. Okay, so don't listen to them. If you're healthy and everything is fine, stay at home, right? Stay at home. Who wants to go to the doctor's office? That's where you get sick. They pass germs around there. They're all over the place. Stay at home. It's not healthy people who go to the physician. It is sick people who go to the physician that you sin for. Well, in terms of spiritual things, Jesus came to call sinners. Sinners are the ones who are sick, and they're the ones who need the good physician, the spiritual physician, right? The doctor of the soul. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, here, when he says the righteous, he doesn't mean that there are righteous people out there who don't need Christ. He's talking about self-righteous people. The self-righteous man, he needs Christ as well. But the self-righteous man, he has stage four cancer, but he thinks everything is good and fine. And he has perfect health. Yeah. The reality is that every single person has stage four cancer spiritually. And every single person needs to go to Christ to be healed of their disease, the spiritual disease of sin. But it is only those who are aware of their sin who will go to the physician in order to be healed. And those who are self-righteous, who think that they are good and fine and everything's good and great between them and God, they're not going to go to Christ. They're not going to go to him for salvation. So he came 
not to call the self-righteous, but to call sinners, right? And this is what the task is. This is what we have to do. We have to convince men from the Bible. Again, when I say convince, I don't mean that we have the ability in ourselves to convince men of these things. It takes the Spirit of God, but God uses the messenger. He uses the people as the mouthpiece, and we do need to make biblical arguments from the Bible to prove to people that they are sinful, that they are wicked, that they need Christ. This is the job that we have in evangelism. It is to convince good men that they are evil men, to convince righteous men that they are wicked men, that they are not nearly as righteous as they think that they are, and that they are sick with sin, and the only solution is to go to Christ. That is what needs to happen, and that's what Jesus came to do. So here, what's he doing with these tax collectors and sinners? He's teaching them, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call sinners. And if we look at Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, when he says, I came to call sinners, call in what way? Verse 32, Luke 5, 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I didn't come, he he doesn't say I came to call sinners to have a better life, to have more self-esteem, to feel better about themselves, to have a one-way ticket to heaven. No, to repentance. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is the dirty word that no one wants to talk about today. It's not a dirty word, really, but it's a dirty word in the minds of men. People won't preach repentance. They do not preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, which necessitates talking about what? You have to talk about sin. So here, when he's reclining with these tax collectors and sinners, if he's calling them to repentance... What's he talking about? He's talking about sin. He's telling them to repent of their sins for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what Christ came to do. And notice as well in verse 13, he tells them, you so-called experts, go learn what this means. Hosea 6.6, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Go learn what the Bible means, what it teaches, what the Old Testament teaches. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, right? You're doing these rituals thinking that in these rituals, you're going to work your way to heaven, but this isn't the way it works. God desires compassion, not rituals, not sacrifice. Now, of course, God does also require rituals in the right way, not but not in the fraudulent way that they're doing it, in the proper and in the true way way. So here, Jesus is calling them to repent. So when people say Jesus was a friend of sinners, Jesus was friendly to sinners who would listen to him, and he would call them to repent. And then if they repented, he was the friend of sinners, the friend of repentant sinners. That is who Jesus was, but not the friend of practicing sinners. Jesus was not their friend. He's their enemy. He's their enemy. Is he friends with the Pharisees at this point? 
No, they're enemies. They hate him. And he doesn't get along with them either. So he wasn't their friend. And he wasn't the friend of practicing thieves, like a tax collector who was thieving from people, or a prostitute who's out practicing her wares in, in the open broad daylight. Jesus wouldn't be a friend of her. He would call her to repent. And then if she repented and did what was right in the sight of God, then she would be included in the household of faith, but not while she's practicing her sin, right? No, no, no way did Jesus ever condone those things. Okay, I think we'll stop there for tonight. And I was hopeful to get to verse 14 to 17, but I think we'll just stop there and we can pick that up uh, next time. And then we'll be able to just finish the rest of the chapter next time as well.